Section 8 of The Life of Abraham Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Casper. The Life of Abraham Lincoln by Ward Hill Lamon. Chapter 6. The volunteers from Sangamon returned to their homes shortly before the state election, at which, among other officers, assemblymen were to be chosen. Lincoln's popularity had been greatly enhanced by his service in the war, and some of his friends urged him with warm solicitations to become a candidate at the coming election. He prudently resisted, and declined to consent, alleging in excuse his limited acquaintance in the county at large, until Mr. James Rutledge, the founder of New Salem, added the weight of his advice to the nearly unanimous desire of the neighborhood. It is quite likely that his recent military career was thought to furnish high promise of usefulness in civil affairs. But Mr. Rutledge was sure that he saw another proof of his great abilities, in a speech which Abe was induced to make, just about this time, before the New Salem Literary Society. The following is an account of this speech by R. B. Rutledge, the son of James. About the year of 1832 or 1833, Mr. Lincoln made his first effort at public speaking. A debating club, of which James Rutledge was president, was organized and held regular meetings. As he rose to speak, his tall form towered above the little assembly. Both his hands were thrust down deep in the pockets of his pantaloons. A perceptible smile at once lit up the faces of the audience, for all anticipated the relation of some humorous story. But he opened up the discussion in splendid style, to the infinite astonishment of his friends. As he warmed with his subject, his hands would forsake his pockets, and would enforce his ideas by awkward gestures, but would very soon seek their easy resting-places. He pursued the question with reason and argument so pithy and forcible that all were amazed. The President, at his fireside, after the meeting, remarked to his wife that there was more in Abe's head than wit and fun, that he was already a fine speaker, that all he lacked was culture to enable him to reach the high destiny which he knew was in store for him. From that time Mr. Rutledge took a deeper interest in him. Soon after, Mr. Rutledge urged him to announce himself as a candidate for the legislature. This he at first declined to do, averring that it was impossible to be elected. It was suggested that a canvass of the county would bring him prominently before the people, and in time would do him good. He reluctantly yielded to the solicitation of his friends, and made a partial canvass. In those days political animosities were fierce enough but owing to the absence of nominating conventions, party lines were not as yet very distinctly drawn in Illinois. Candidates announced themselves, but usually it was done after full consultation with influential friends or persons of considerable power in the neighborhood of the candidate's residence. We have already seen the process by which Mr. Lincoln was induced to come forward, there were often secret combinations among a number of candidates, securing a mutual support. But in the present case there is no trace of such an understanding. This, 1832, was the year of General Jackson's election. The Democrats stigmatized their opponents as Federalists, 
while the latter were steadily struggling to shuffle off the odious name. For the present they called themselves Democratic Republicans, and it was not until 1833 or 1834 that they formally took to themselves the designation of Whig. The Democrats were better known as Jackson men than Democrats, and were inexpressibly proud of either name. Four or five years afterward their enemies invented for their benefit the meaningless and hideous word loco-foco. Since 1826 every general election in the state had resulted in a democratic victory. The young men were mostly Democrats, and the most promising talents in the state were devoted to the cause, which seemed destined to achieve success wherever there was a contest. In a new country, largely peopled by adventurers from older states, there were necessarily found great numbers who would attach themselves to the winning side, merely because it was the winning side. It is unnecessary to restate here the prevailing questions in national politics. Jackson's stupendous struggle with the bank, hard money, no monopoly, internal improvements, the tariff, and nullification, or the personal and political relations of the chieftains, Jackson, Clay, and Calhoun. Mr. Lincoln will shortly disclose in one of his speeches from the stump which of those questions were of special interest to the people of Illinois, and consequently which of them principally occupied his own attention. The Democrats were divided into whole-hog men and nominal Jackson men, the former being thoroughly devoted to the fortunes and principles of their leader, while the latter were willing to trim a little for the sake of popular support. It is probable that Mr. Lincoln might be fairly classed as a nominal Jackson man, although the precise character of some of the views he then held, or is supposed to have held, on national questions is involved in considerable doubt. He had not wholly forgotten Jones or Jones's teachings. He still remembered his high dispute with Offutt in the shanty at Spring Creek, when he effectually defended Jackson against the abuse of his employer. He was not Whig, but Whiggish, as Dennis Hanks expresses it. It is not likely that a man who deferred so habitually to the popular sentiment around him would have selected the occasion of his settlement in a new place to go over bodily to a hopeless political minority. At all events, we have at least three undisputed facts, which make it plain that he then occupied an intermediate position between the extremes of all parties. First, he received the votes of all parties at New Salem. Second, he was the next year appointed postmaster by General Jackson. And third, the Democrats ran him for the legislature two years afterwards, and he was elected by a larger majority than any other candidate. Our old way of conducting elections, says Governor Ford, required each aspirant to announce himself as a candidate. The most prudent, however, always consulted a little caucus of select influential friends. The candidates then travelled round the county, or state, in proper person, making speeches, conversing with the people, soliciting votes, whispering slanders against their opponents, and defending themselves against the attacks of their adversaries. But it was not always best to defend against such attacks. A candidate in a fair way to be elected should never deny any charge made against him, for if he does his adversaries will prove all that they have said and much more. As a candidate did not offer himself as the champion of any party, 
he usually agreed with all opinions and promised everything demanded by the people and most usually promised either directly or indirectly his support to all the other candidates at the same election one of the arts was to raise a quarrel with unpopular men who were odious to the people and then try to be elected upon the unpopularity of others as well as upon his own popularity these modes of electioneering were not true of all the candidates nor perhaps of half of them very many of them being gentlemen of first-class integrity the portion of the people whose influence lay in their fighting qualities and who were prone to carry a huge knife in the belt of their hunting shirt were sometimes called the butcher knife boys and sometimes the half-horse and half-alligator men. This class, according to Governor Ford, made a kind of balance-of-power party. Their favorite was sure of success, and nearly all political contests were decided by butcher-knife influence. In all elections, and in all enactments of the legislature, great pains were taken by all candidates and all men in office to make their course and measures acceptable to these knights of steel and muscle at a later date they enjoyed a succession of titles such as barefoot boys the flat-footed boys and the big-pawed boys in those times governor ford avers that he has seen all the rum shops and groceries of the principal places of a county chartered by candidates and kept open for the gratuitous accommodation of the free and independent electors for several weeks before the vote every saturday afternoon the people flocked to the county seat to see the candidates to hear speeches to discuss prospects to get drunk and fight toward evening they would mount their ponies go reeling from side to side galloping through towns and throwing up their caps and hats screeching like so many infernal spirits broke loose from their nether prison and thus they separated for their homes these observations occur in ford's account of the campaign of eighteen thirty which resulted in the choice of governor reynolds two years before mr lincoln first became a candidate and lead us to suppose that the body of electors before whom that gentleman presented himself were none too cultivated or refined mr lincoln's first appearance on the stump in the course of the canvass was at papsville about eleven miles west of springfield upon the occasion of a public sale by the firm of Poog and Knapp. The sale over, speech-making was about to begin, when Mr. Lincoln observed strong symptoms of inattention in his audience, who had taken that particular moment to engage in what Mr. James A. Herndon pronounces a general fight. Lincoln saw that one of his friends was suffering more than he liked in the melee, and stepping into the crowd he shouldered them sternly away from his man, until he met a fellow who refused to fall back him he seized by the nape of his neck and the seat of his breeches and tossed him ten or twelve feet easily after this episode as characteristic of him as of the times he mounted the platform and delivered with awkward modesty the following speech gentlemen and fellow-citizens i presume you all know who i am i am humble abraham lincoln I have been solicited by many friends to become a candidate for the legislature. My politics are short and sweet, like the old woman's dance. I am in favor of a national bank. I am in favor of the internal improvement system and a high protective tariff. These are my sentiments and political principles. If elected, I shall be thankful. If not, it will be all the same." In these few sentences Mr. Lincoln adopted the leading principles of the Whig Party clay's american system in full 
In his view, as we shall see by another paper from him when again a candidate in 1834, the internal improvement system required a distribution of the proceeds of the sales of the public lands amongst the states. He says nothing of South Carolina, of nullification, of disunion, and on these subjects it is quite probable his views were like Mr. Webster's, and his sympathies with Jackson. The opinions announced in this speech, on all the subjects touched by the speaker, were as emphatically Whig as they could be made in words, yet as far as they related to internal improvements, and indirectly favoured the increase of bank issues, they were such as most of the nominal Jackson men in Illinois professed to hold, and such as they united with the Whigs to enforce then and afterwards in the state legislature. The whole hog men would have none of them, and therein lay the distinction. Although the Democratic Party continued to have a numerical majority for many years in the legislature, the nominal men and the Whigs coalesced to control legislation in accordance with Whig doctrines. Even with such a record made, and making by them, the nominal men persisted in calling themselves Democrats, while Jackson was vetoing the Maysville Road Bill, grappling with the National Bank, and exposing the oppressive character of the Tariff Act then in force, which imposed the highest scale of duties since the first enactment for protection in 1816. It was their practice to run men like themselves for the state offices where the chances of a plain-spoken Whig were hopeless, and by means of the nominal character of the candidate, to secure enough Democratic votes united with the Whigs to elect him. In the very next canvass Mr. Lincoln himself was taken up by such a combination, and triumphantly elected. Such things were made feasible by the prevalent mode of making nominations without the salutary intervention of regular party conventions and committees. We repeat that Mr. Lincoln's position was midway between the extremes in local politics. His friend, Mr. A. Y. Ellis, who was with him during a part of this campaign, says, he wore a mixed jeans coat, claw-hammer style, short in the sleeves and bob-tail. In fact, it was so short in the tail he could not sit on it. Flax and tow linen pantaloons, and a straw hat. I think he wore a vest, but do not remember how it looked. He then wore pot-metal boots. I accompanied him on one of his electioneering trips to Island Grove, and he made a speech which pleased his party friends very well indeed, though some of the Jackson men tried to make sport of it. He told several anecdotes in his speech, and applied them, as I thought, very well. He also told the boys several stories which drew them after him. I remember them, but modesty and my veneration for his memory forbid me to relate them. Mr. J. R. Herndon, his friend and landlord, heard him make several speeches about this same time, and gives us the following extract from one which seems to have made a special impression upon the minds of his auditors. Fellow citizens, I have been told that some of my opponents have said that it was a disgrace to the county of Sangamon to have such a looking man as I am stuck up for the legislature. Now I thought this was a free country. That is the reason I address you to-day. Had I known to the contrary, I should not have consented to run. But I will say one thing, let the shoe pinch where it may. When I have been a candidate before you some five or six times, and have been beaten every time, I will consider it a disgrace, and will be sure never to try it again. But I am bound to beat that man if I am beat myself. 
These were not the only speeches he made in furtherance of his present claims, but they are all of which we have any intelligible account. There was one subject upon which he felt himself peculiarly competent to speak, the practical application of the internal improvement system to the river which flowed by the doors of the constituency he addressed. He firmly believed in the right of the legislature of the state or the Congress of the United States to appropriate public money to local improvements for the sole advantage of limited districts, and he believed it good policy to exercise the right. His subsequent conduct in legislature and an elaborate speech in Congress are sufficient proof. In this doctrine he had the almost unanimous support of the people of Illinois. Almost every man in the state was a speculator in town lots or lands. Even the farmers had taken up or held the very lands they tilled with a view to a speculation in the near future. Long after the Democratic Party in the South and East, leaving Mr. Calhoun in a state of isolation, had begun to inculcate different views of constitutional power and duty, it was a dangerous thing for a politician in Illinois to intimate his agreement with them. Mr. Lincoln knew well that the policy of local improvement at the general expense was at that moment decidedly the most popular platform he could mount, but he felt that this was not enough for his individual purposes, since it was no invention of his, and belonged to nearly everybody else as much as to him. He therefore prudently engrafted upon it a hobby of his own, the improvement of the Sangamon River, a plan to straighten it by means of cuts, to clear out its obstructions, and make it a commercial highway at the cost of the state. That the idea was nearly, if not quite, impracticable, the trip of the talisman under Mr. Lincoln's piloting, and the fact that the river remained unimproved during all the years of the internal improvement mania, would seem to be pretty clear evidence. But the theme was agreeable to the popular ear, and had been dear to Lincoln from the moment he laid his eyes on the Sangamon. It was the great topic of his speech against Posey and Ewing in Macon County, when, under the auspices of John Hanks, he beat those professional politicians so completely that they applauded him themselves. His experience in navigating the river was not calculated to make him forget it, and it had occupied his thoughts more or less from that day forward. Now that it might be turned to good use, where he was personally interested, he set about preparing a written address on it, and on some other questions of local interest, upon which he bestowed infinite pains. The grammatical errors in the first draft were corrected by Mr. McNamar, the pioneer of New Salem as a business point, and the gentleman who was destined to be Mr. Lincoln's rival in the most important love affair of his life. He may have consulted the schoolmaster also, but if he had done so, it is hardly to be surmised that the schoolmaster would have left so important a fact out of his written reminiscences. It is more probable that Mr. Lincoln confined his applications for assistance on this most important matter to the quarter where he could get light on politics as well as grammar. However that may have been, the following is the finished paper. To the people of Sangamon County, fellow citizens, Having become a candidate for the honorable office of one of your representatives in the next General Assembly of this State, in accordance with an established custom and the principles of true republicanism, it becomes my duty to make known to you, the people whom I propose to represent, my sentiments with regard to local affairs. Time and experience have verified to a demonstration the public utility of internal improvements. 
that the poorest and most thinly populated countries would be greatly benefited by the opening of good roads and in the clearing of navigable streams within their limits is what no person will deny yet it is folly to undertake works of this or any other kind without first knowing that we are able to finish them as a half-finished work generally proves to be labor lost there cannot justly be any objection to having railroads and canals any more than to other good things provided they cost nothing the only objection is to paying for them and the objection arises from the want of ability to pay with respect to the county of sangamon some more easy means of communication than it now possesses for the purpose of facilitating the task of exporting the surplus products of its fertile soil and importing necessary articles from abroad are indispensably necessary a meeting has been held of the citizens of jacksonville and the adjacent county for the purpose of deliberating and inquiring into the expediency of constructing a railroad from some eligible point on the illinois river through the town of jacksonville in morgan county to the town of springfield in sangamon county this is indeed a very desirable object no other improvement that reason will justify us in hoping for can equal in utility the railroad it is a never-failing source of communication between places of business remotely situated from each other upon the railroad the regular business of commercial intercourse is not interrupted by either high or low water or freezing weather which are the principal difficulties that render our future hopes of water communication precarious and uncertain yet however desirable an object the construction of a railroad through our county may be however high our imaginations may be heated at thoughts of it there is always a heart-appalling shock accompanying the account of its cost which forces us to shrink from our pleasing anticipations the probable cost of this contemplated railroad is estimated at two hundred and ninety thousand dollars the bare statement of which in my opinion is sufficient to justify the belief that the improvement of the sangamon river is an object much better suited to our infant resources respecting this view i think i may say without the fear of being contradicted that its navigation may be rendered completely practicable as high as the mouth of the south fork or probably higher to vessels of from twenty-five to thirty tons burden for at least one-half of all common years and to vessels of much greater burden a part of that time from my peculiar circumstances it is probable that for the last twelve months i have given as particular attention to the stage of the water in this river as any other person in the country in the month of march eighteen thirty one in company with others i commenced the building of a flatboat on the sangamon and finished and took her out in the course of the spring since that time i have been concerned in the mill at new salem these circumstances are sufficient evidence that i have not been very inattentive to the stages of the water the time at which we crossed the mill dam being in the last days of april the water was lower than it had been since the breaking of winter in february or than it was for several weeks after the principal difficulties we encountered in descending the river were from the drifted timber which obstructions all know are not difficult to be removed knowing almost precisely the height of the water at that time i believe i am safe in saying that it has as often been higher as lower since from this view of the subject it appears that my calculations with regard to the navigation of the sangamon 
cannot but be founded in reason but whatever may be its natural advantages certain it is that it never can be practically useful to any great extent without being greatly improved by art the drifted timber as i have before mentioned is the most formidable barrier to this object of all parts of this river none will require so much labor in proportion to make it navigable as that last thirty or thirty-five miles and going with the meanderings of the channel when we are this distance above its mouth we are only between twelve and eighteen miles above beardstown in something near a straight direction and this route is upon such low ground as to retain water in many places during the season and in all parts such as draw two-thirds or three-fourths of the river water at all high stages this route is on prairie land the whole distance so that it appears to me by removing the turf a sufficient width and damming up the old channel the whole river in a short time would wash its way through thereby curtailing the distance and increasing the velocity of the current very considerably while there would be no timber on the banks to obstruct its navigation in future and being nearly straight the timber which might float in at the head would be apt to go clear through there are also many places above this where the river in its zigzag course forms such complete peninsulas as to be easier to cut at the necks than to remove the obstructions from the bends which if done would also lessen the distance what the cost of this work would be i am unable to say it is probable however that it would not be greater than is common to streams of the same length finally i believe the improvement of the sangamon river to be vastly important and highly desirable to the people of the county and if elected any measure in the legislature having this for its object which may appear judicious will meet my approbation and shall receive my support it appears that the practice of drawing money at exorbitant rates of interest has already been opened as a field for discussion so i suppose i may enter upon it without claiming the honor or risking the danger which may await its first explorer it seems as though we are never to have an end to this baneful and corroding system acting almost as prejudicial to the general interests of the community as a direct tax of several thousand dollars annually laid on each county for the benefit of a few individuals only unless there be a law made fixing the limits of usury a law for this purpose i am of opinion may be made without materially injuring any class of people in cases of extreme necessity there could always be found means to cheat the law while in all other cases it would have its intended effect i would favor the passage of a law on this subject which might not be very easily evaded let it be such that the labor and difficulty of evading it could only be justified in the cases of greatest necessity Note until the year eighteen thirty three there had been no legal limit to the rate of interest to be fixed by contract but usury had been carried to such an unprecedented degree of extortion and oppression as to cause the legislature to enact severe usury laws by which all interest above twelve per cent was condemned it had been no uncommon thing before this to charge one hundred and one hundred and fifty per cent and sometimes two and three hundred per cent but the common rate of interest by contract had been about fifty per cent ford's history page two thirty three End note. upon the subject of education not presuming to dictate any plan or system respecting it 
I can only say that I view it as the most important subject which we as a people can be engaged in, that every man may receive at least a moderate education, and thereby be enabled to read the histories of his own and other countries, by which he may duly appreciate the value of our free institutions, appears to be an object of vital importance even on this account alone, to say nothing of the advantages and satisfaction to be derived from all being able to read the scriptures and other works, both of a religious and a moral nature, for themselves. For my part I desire to see the time when education, and by its means morality, sobriety, enterprise, and industry, shall become much more general than at present, and should be gratified to have it in my power to contribute something to the advancement of any measure which might have a tendency to accelerate the happy period. With regard to existing laws, some alterations are thought to be necessary. Many respectable men have suggested that our estray laws, the law respecting the issuing of executions, the road law, and some others, are deficient in their present form, and require alterations. But considering the great probability that the framers of those laws were wiser than myself, I should prefer not meddling with them unless they were first attacked by others, in which case I should feel it both a privilege and a duty to take that stand which, in my view, might tend most to the advancement of justice. But, fellow-citizens, I shall conclude. Considering the great degree of modesty which should always attend youth, it is probable I have already been more presuming than becomes me. However, upon the subjects of which I have treated, I have spoken as I have thought. I may be wrong, in regard to any, or all of them, but holding it a sound maxim that it is better only sometimes to be right than at all times wrong, so soon as I discover my opinions to be erroneous I shall be ready to renounce them. Every man is said to have his peculiar ambition. Whether it be true or not, I can say, for one, that I have none other so great as that of being truly esteemed of my fellow-men by rendering myself worthy of their esteem. How far I shall succeed in gratifying this ambition is yet to be developed. I am young and unknown to many of you. I was born, and have ever remained, in the most humble walks of life. I have no wealthy or popular relations or friends to recommend. My case is thrown exclusively upon the independent voters of the county, and, if elected, they will have conferred a favour upon me, for which I shall be unremitting in my labours to compensate. But if the good people, in their wisdom, shall see fit to keep me in the background, I have been too familiar with disappointments to be very much chagrined. Your friend and fellow-citizen, A. Lincoln, New Salem, March ninth, 1832. Mr. Lincoln was defeated at the election, having 470 votes less than the candidate who had the highest number. But his disappointment was softened by the action of his immediate neighbors, who gave him an almost unanimous support. With three solitary exceptions, he received the whole vote of his precinct, 277, being one more than the whole number cast for both the candidates for Congress. End of section 8